This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Hello, welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to the show. With this podcast, I share a variety of stories from the most well-known dynasty of them all, the Tudors. From simple stories about the people of the time to the drama that was the reign of Henry VIII. And of course, politics. This show is presented to you commercial-free thanks to my wonderful patrons. If you'd like to help, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudors Dynasty and click Become a Patron. For as little as a dollar per month, you can help keep this show commercial-free. In this episode, I explore the long and tragic life of Margaret Pohl, Countess of Salisbury. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be transported back in time to the court of King Henry VIII. At Farley Castle on the 14th of August, 1473, a daughter was born to the Duke and Duchess of Clarence. They called her Margaret most likely after the Duke's sister, Margaret of Burgundy. Margaret was born during the brutal and bloody time of the Wars of the Roses, a powerful family divided by the House of York and House of Lancaster. Both believed the throne of England belonged to them. Margaret was born in the middle of this English chaos, and her father was third in line to the throne of England. The Duke of Clarence, Margaret's father, was George Plantagenet, the troubled middle brother of King Edward IV and Richard, Duke of Gloucester, future Richard III. Like his brothers and father, George was an excellent warrior, but was easily swayed by power. His wife, Isabel Neville, was the Duchess of Clarence. She was also the daughter of the Earl of Warwick, also known as the Kingmaker. Warwick was instrumental in placing Edward, Duke of York, on the throne. But Warwick was not happy when the new king chose to secretly wed the widowed Elizabeth Woodville, whose husband, John Grey, had fought and died for the Lancastrians in the Wars of the Roses, instead of his choice for a marriage alliance. The Earl of Warwick was beside himself that the king would have married without first discussing with him. Eventually, Warwick convinced the king's brother George to wed his daughter Isabel, and with the help of George's mother, claimed that Edward IV was illegitimate and not the son of Richard, Duke of York. Their plan was to place George on the throne of England as the eldest legitimate son of Richard, Duke of York. Alongside him would be Warwick's daughter, Isabel. Now, long story short, on the Wars of the Roses, Henry VI went mad. Then Edward IV took over. Henry VI came back, and then Edward IV returned. Now this all ended with Henry VI dying, whether he was murdered or or died of natural causes is still up for debate. The Earl of Warwick was killed in battle. Isabel Neville died. George, Duke of Clarence, was executed. And by 1478, Margaret Plantagenet and her brother Edward were both orphans. Life for Margaret and her brother would never be the same. They were taken in by the royal household, and by 1485, their uncle Edward IV was dead, as well as his two sons, the princes in the tower. 
Not to mention their paternal uncle, Richard III, and maternal aunt and queen consort, Anne Neville. The only people remaining were Elizabeth Woodville and her daughters. When Henry Tudor became king of England, some believe that Margaret and her brother Edward had a stronger claim to the throne than Henry, because he had won the crown on the battlefield. This resulted in Lambert Simnel being touted as the young Edward, Earl of Warwick, as claimant to the throne by means of the House of York. Their plan was to get people to join an army against the Tudor king. As Simnel was discovered to be an imposter, because the real Edward was actually at court, then Perkin Warbeck took a shot at the throne, claiming to be one of the princes in the tower, Richard. Warbeck was eventually arrested, and in 1499, both he and the real Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, were executed. Margaret Plantagenet was now the only member of her family alive, but she wasn't alone. At the age of 14, Margaret was married to Richard Pole, a loyal subject of the king and relative of Margaret Beaufort. The marriage was a good match in the eyes of King Henry VII. A marriage to Pole would make it more difficult for plotters to use Margaret as a figurehead for the Yorkist cause. Margaret and Richard went on to have five children together. Henry, who is the future Lord Montague, Arthur, Ursula, Reginald, and Geoffrey. At the age of 28, Margaret spent five months in the household of Catherine of Aragon until the death of the Prince of Wales in April 1502. Sir Richard Pole died in October 1504. After his death, Margaret was left to raise five children in the difficult financial situation after her husband's death. Her jointure was not sufficient for the circumstances she had inherited. Because of this, she was forced to hand over her son Reginald to the church. She had no other choice. Margaret's life took a turn for the better in 1509 when King Henry VII died, and his son Henry became the eighth of that name. Margaret found herself once again in the household of Catherine of Aragon, only this time she was queen consort, to her late husband's brother. I wonder if that was awkward at all. In 1512, at the petition of Margaret, Henry VIII granted her the Earldom of Salisbury, making her Countess of Salisbury in her own right. Things were beginning to look up for not only Margaret, but also her children, as they too were in favor with the king. The fact that Margaret held the peerage title in her own right was a big deal, and something rarely heard of in the 16th century. The next notable name to do so was Anne Boleyn in 1532. The relationship between the king and Margaret wavered a bit in 1518 when Henry repossessed some of her Salisbury lands, saying that they belonged to the Duchy of Somerset. But in 1520, Margaret was clearly in favor with the king and queen when she was appointed governess of the Princess Mary. The following year, she was removed from her position when her sons were implicated in the Duke of Buckingham's treason. Four years later, at the age of 52, Margaret was reinstated as Princess Mary's governess once more. Margaret was very fond of the Princess Mary and protected her like any mother would. Margaret even offered to remain on as Mary's governess after her household was dissolved in 1533. She said she would serve the princess at her own expense. Her request was denied. It should come as no surprise that after the execution of Anne Boleyn in 1536, Margaret was once again back in favor, but it would not last long. The son who she had given to the church, 
denounced in writing King Henry's royal supremacy. By his letter, Reginald Pole had put his entire family in danger. When Margaret was informed of her son's letter, she wrote him and admonished his letter to the king. But really, what else could she have done? The dissolution of the monasteries, as well as the king claiming royal supremacy, led to what was called the Pilgrimage of Grace. Evidence remains from the imperial ambassador Eustace Chapwee that in 1534 there were already whispers of something big happening in England. Margaret's youngest son, Geoffrey, had been in contact with him. Chapwee was more than happy to report this to his master. Quote, Respecting the disaffection of the Welsh country, to which allusion has been made in the said letters, my information is that the inhabitants are really very much concerned and afflicted at the bad treatment of the queen and princess, as well as at what is now being done against the faith. For they, the Welsh, have always been and are still, to a man, good Christians. In the letter, it goes on to say, quote, I am informed from a good quarter this king is exceedingly annoyed. In short, the state of things in this kingdom is such that should your majesty send the smallest possible force, all the people would at once declare in your favor, especially if the said Reginald Pole were in the country. And he continues, The latter's brother... Jeffrey is with me and would visit me almost every day had I not dissuaded him from doing so on account of the danger he might run. He, however, ceases not, like many others, to importune and beg to me to write to your majesty and explain how easy the conquest of this kingdom would be and that the inhabitants are only waiting for a signal. I've never spoken to him about his brother Reginald, except warning him that the latter had much better remain where he is now, and beg his daily bread in the streets, than attempt returning here in these troubled times, for fear that he should be treated as the poor Bishop of Rochester, or worse still. This, he assures me, he has done, having written to him many a time, and made his mother also write and warn him not to come here. At the end of 1536, after Anne Boleyn was executed and King Henry married Jane Seymour, Reginald Pole was made a cardinal, and this only heightened the tension between the cardinal and the king. In the summer of 1538, it all began to unravel for Margaret Pole and her children. A servant of her son Geoffrey, called Hugh Holland, was arrested. Author Susan Higginbotham of Margaret Pole, the Countess in the Tower, states that it may have been Margaret's own pious act which resulted in her family's downfall. Margaret maintained a surgeon house in Warmlington, and the house surgeon, called Richard Eyre, claimed that Margaret kept, quote, a company of priests in her house, which did her much harm and kept her from the true knowledge of God's word. It appeared to Eyre that Margaret was of the old faith and not the new faith like himself. Word had reached Thomas Cromwell, Lord Privy Seal, and he sent a spy to collect info for him. The man was Gervais Tyndall, and he was a schoolmaster. Tyndall lodged at the hospital, and Richard Eyre was more than willing to give up the goods on Margaret and her family. Eyre told the spy that a servant of Geoffrey Pole called Holland was conveying letters to Reginald Pole, and that, quote, all the secrets of the realm were known to the Bishop of Rome, as well as though he were here. Allegedly, when Margaret figured out the patient called Tyndall was of the new religion, she ordered Iyer to send him away. Had she been receiving reports that Iyer was spilling the beans? 
When Tyndall refused to go due to his supposed, quote, poor health, she ordered Iyer to send all the patients away, but not before it was revealed that Margaret's counsel refused to allow her tenants to own an English-language Bible. Holland was but a servant, and one can assume that the man, upon his arrest, was terrified of torture. He gave evidence against Jeffrey, which in turn also damned Margaret. Holland stated that he went to Flanders to sell some meat for his master, Jeffrey Pohl. While there, he was asked to deliver a message to Pohl's brother, Reginald. In that letter, Jeffrey offered to join his brother. He said, quote, The world in England waxes all crooked. God's law is turned upside down, abbey and churches overthrown, and he is taken for a traitor. And he also claimed in that letter that assassins had been sent to kill Reginald. In Showtime's The Tudors, the assassins were Sir Francis Bryan and Sir Thomas Seymour. We don't know who these assassins were, but it makes for an interesting story, doesn't it? After Reginald read the letter from his younger brother, he sent a letter back to his mother, Margaret, saying that, quote, My hope is in God, and that he desired her blessing. For his brother Jeffrey, he said, quote, Meddle little and let all things alone. But Jeffrey wouldn't take no for an answer. He clearly wanted to be part of this movement against the King of England. It was not long before he was arrested. Geoffrey Pohl was placed in the Tower of London on the 29th of August, 1538. With one son exiled and one in the Tower, Margaret Pohl must have felt the noose tightening around her family. Two months after his arrest, Geoffrey Pohl was finally interrogated and asked for names of others involved. He named several people, including his own brother, Henry, Lord Montague. Pohl insisted his brother only wanted to change as far as religious matters and that he did not wish harm to the king. By that time, it was already too late. Geoffrey listed his brother, regardless of any disclaimers, and it appears that he became so guilt-ridden by it all that John Hussey reported to Lord Lyle that Geoffrey was, quote, so in despair that he would have murdered himself, and it was told me hurt himself sore. Another man by the name of Richard Morrison claimed that Jeffrey stabbed himself in the chest with a blunt knife. During all of this, Margaret was at Warblington. Those around her worried that her loose-lipped son would take her down with him just like he did his own brother, Lord Montague. To that, Margaret said, I trow he is not so unhappy that he will hurt his mother, and yet I care neither for him nor any other, for I am true to my prince." Eight days after the arrest of her son, Lord Montague, Margaret was visited by the Earl of Southampton, Thomas Goodrich, and the Bishop of Ely for questioning. For two days, they questioned the Stoic Countess. Margaret claimed that her son Reginald had not told her that he went abroad because he disliked the way the kingdom was governed. In addition, she had not received any letter concerning him except one from the king. She also did not know about Hugh Holland being sent to deliver letters to her son. The plot to assassinate Reginald was something that Margaret was aware of, and she stated that her son Geoffrey had told her of the king's plan and that she had hoped to change his majesty's mind. Margaret was asked if she knew that her son Geoffrey and Lord Montague wished to join their brother and responded that she prayed God that she may be torn in pieces if ever she heard such a thing of her son's. She also denied in questioning that she wished for Reginald to be made pope. 
Margaret admitted that she was sorry for the destruction of the abbey and religious houses where her ancestors were buried, insinuating that was her only issue. After questioning had ceased, her interrogators wrote to Cromwell and told him, quote, Yesterday we travailed with the Lady of Salisbury all day, both before and after noon, until almost night. Albeit, for all we could do, though we used her diversely, she would utter and confess little or nothing more than the first day, and that she, quote, utterly denies all that is objected unto her, and that with most stiff and earnest words. Her interrogators believed that either Margaret was a marvelous liar or that her sons did not make her privy to their plans. Even though Margaret did not make herself guilty through questioning, the men did not believe her truly innocent. They instead seized her goods and moved her to Southampton's manor of Cadre. Margaret was appalled at the idea. They hoped that moving her to a less friendly location would get her to open up and confess. Southampton and Ely were surprised when even that did not work, noting that, quote, We have dealt with such a one as men have not dealt with all before us. We may call her rather a strong and constant man than a woman. For in all behavior, howsoever, we have used her. She has showed herself so earnest, vehement, and precise that more cannot be. Merely two weeks after Margaret was questioned, her eldest son, Lord Montague, was tried before a jury of his peers at Westminster. He was followed by the Marquess of Exeter, Geoffrey Pole, Edward Neville, Hugh Holland, George Crofts, and John Collins. At all of the trials, the men were unanimously found guilty and were sentenced to a traitor's death, to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. But since Margaret's son, Lord Montague, was of a higher ranking, he, along with Exeter and Neville, had their sentences commuted to beheading. The other men were not so lucky. After their execution, their heads were placed on London Bridge, and their quarters were placed on, quote, on divers gates about London. As a reminder to the king's subjects, what happens when you're involved in treason? Margaret's son, Geoffrey, was more fortunate. He was pardoned something he clearly could not live with as he attempted to take his life in the tower for a second time since his arrest. Eustace Chapwee reported that he tried, quote, to suffocate himself with a cushion. By May 1539, Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, was attained on treason. This meant she would not receive a trial. Higginbotham states in her book that, quote, the evidence against her appears to be quite vague which was undoubtedly why the government chose this means of proceeding. Her attainder reads, And where also Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, and Hugh Vaughan, late of Beckner in the county of Monmouth, yeomen by instigation of the devil, putting apart the dread of Almighty God, their duty of allegiance, and the excellent benefits received of His Highness, have not only traitorously confederated themselves with the false and abominable traitors Henry Pole, Lord Montague, and Reginald Pole, son to the said Countess, knowing them to be false traitors, but also have maliciously aided, abetted, maintained, and comforted them in their said false and abominable treason to the most fearful peril of His Highness, the Commonwealth of this realm, the said Marchioness and the said Countess be declared attained and shall suffer the pains and penalties of high treason. 
After Cromwell read the act of attainder, he displayed a tunic from Margaret's coffer that displayed a coat of arms that appeared to be the combination of the pole arms with that of the Lady Mary, for it was suspected that the two would wed and return England to Catholicism. We don't know the date for certain, but we do know that by the 20th of November, 1539, Margaret was a prisoner in the Tower of London. The following month, Thomas Cromwell was informed that additional clothing was needed for two ladies and their attendants in the Tower, who were under the charge of Thomas Phillips. Margaret apparently made quite a fuss, stating that she was in need of proper clothing to keep her warm and to change. Now, was this why the order was approved by the king to have that clothing made for the countess? The clothing that Catherine Howard is often credited for? Margaret would stay in the tower for as long as her son, Reginald, was still a threat. Margaret Pole was executed on the 27th of May, 1541. French Ambassador Merlick said this of Margaret's execution, quote, Yesterday morning, about 7 o'clock, beheaded in the corner of the tower, in presence of so few people that until evening the truth was still doubted. It was the more difficult to believe as she had been long prisoner, was a noble lineage, above 80 years old, and had been punished, but the loss of one son and banishment of the other and total ruin of her house. Imperial Ambassador Eustace Chapuis had this to say, The very strange and lamentable execution of Madame Salisbury, the daughter of the Duke of Clarence and mother of Cardinal Pole, took place at the Tower in the presence of the Lord Mayor of London and about 150 persons more. At first, when the sentence of death was made known to her, she found the thing very strange, not knowing what crime she was accused nor how she had been sentenced. But at last, perceiving that there was no remedy and that die she must, she went out of the dungeon where she had been detained and walked towards the midst of the space in front of the Tower, where there was no scaffold erected, nor anything except a small block. Arrived there, after commending her soul to the Creator, she asked those present to pray for the King, the Queen, the Prince, and the Princess, to all of whom she wished to be particularly commended, and more especially to the latter, whose godmother she had been. She sent her blessing to her, and begged also for hers." after which words she was told to make haste and place her neck on the block, which she did. But as the ordinary executor of justice was absent doing his work in the north, a wretched and blundering youth was chosen who literally hacked her head and shoulders to pieces in the most pitiful manner. May God in his high grace pardon her soul, for certainly she was a most virtuous and honorable lady." and there was no need or haste to bring so ignominious a death upon her. Considering that, as she was then nearly 90, 90 years old, she could not in the ordinary course of nature live long. When her death had been resolved upon her, her nephew, the son of Mr. Montague, had occasionally permission to go about within the precincts of the tower, was placed in close confinement, and it is supposed that he will soon follow his father and grandmother. May God help him. Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, was laid to rest at St. Peter ad Vincula, the same place where many of our Tudor favorites remain. That's where we'll end this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. 
Until next time. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Wait a second. You don't think I actually forgot to thank my patrons, did you? It's because of these wonderful people that this show is commercial-free, and without their generosity, it probably wouldn't exist. If you'd like to become a patron of my podcast, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tutors Dynasty, and click Become a Patron. For as little as $1 per month, you can show your support. And with that, I'd like to thank Stacy, Angela G., Mary J., Heidi, Christopher, Jennifer, Shelby, Sari, Sue, Johanna, Doris, Courtney, Bob, Diana, Rachel, Michelle, Lacey, Diane, Kathy, Katie, Joy, James, Anne, Azaria, Lisa, Nora, Sarah, Wendy, Mary T., Cynthia, Melissa, Nikki, Cheryl, Carrie, Tanya, Donna, Catherine, Jen, Lara, Megan, Pat, and Heather from the English Renaissance History Podcast. Thank you again for joining me. Until next time.